Hello everyone, I'm Paul Botts, the CEO and founder of Good Leadership Enterprises. And I'm Dan Hogan from Lockton. Welcome to the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. We are recording this together in the aspiration suite of our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we coach leaders and their teams how to grow their businesses with goodness. In short, our team coaches your team through the transformations that are required for you to get to the next level of your performance. Hey, Dan, will you tell everybody how we'd met? Well, Paul, I met you through my partners in our Minneapolis office who were uh, coming to your events, and I really enjoyed it and uh, ended up kind of taking over the mantle of uh, locked-in sponsorship at your different events and and uh, taking your message into our company. And uh, it's been about a year and a half, and I've really enjoyed all the time that we've spent together. Well, and you flew up here from Kansas City. I That's did. where you live. That's and right. We're really grateful to have Lockton as a sponsor particularly around the research that we're doing to continue to advance this idea around goodness pays. Today's podcast is featuring the appearance of a California roofing company innovator, Charles Antis, from the Good Leadership Breakfast that just happened today. It's a monthly leadership development event that Paul started back in 2009. Yes, and today was a start of our 11th year of programming, and it was really fun. We've we've upped our game. We've added audience response technology through a, a Poll Everywhere app that's on everybody's phones. And we, uh, we created this character called the Goodness Barista, and his name is Bo, and Bo's job is to help us whip up the buzz about the Good Leadership Breakfast and the topic about how goodness pays. And Charles Antis was the perfect speaker. This guy was animated, and he created lots of reasons for people to engage. Yeah, I, I agree. I was I was fascinated with uh, the the first story he tells, and and that's the genesis of how he adopted that helping people and that philosophy, and then transferred that onto his company as well. Yeah, it resonated with me too. You know, I started my business with very little experience in what I do now, and we're thriving. And I feel like I got a chance to really connect with him that way. Uh, but we call um, this the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast, so, so I should probably explain what do we mean by goodness. After several years of research, we identified a definition of goodness, and that is that when people thrive together in a culture of encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. And so we've dedicated the Good Leadership Breakfast to finding speakers who are willing to talk about the intersection of their personal and professional lives and basically provide testimony about how goodness pays for them. So for our first-time listeners, the strategy of this episode is what we call Monday morning quarterbacking. In other words, we'll play some of the highlights of Charles' talk this morning and then share our observations and even sometimes criticisms based on our experience as executive coaches. So I think we should just jump right in and get started with how Charles Antis opened the meeting. 30 years ago and 11 months, Antis Roofing was born. And I'd love to tell you that it was born with this great business plan, but I didn't know what a business plan was then. I started a roofing company because the company I was working for didn't have enough work. And I had a baby at home. And so I, I discovered I had a skill. I could repair anything that leaked from rain. I couldn't really sell you a roof. You didn't have a crew, didn't have a kettle, but I could repair anything that leaked from rain. And so I got confident in that and I put that out there. And I got about two calls a week. I was so desperate for calls that my work one week was putting weather stripping on the home bedroom that I had converted to an office. So if somebody called, they wouldn't hear my daughter. 
And so under that type of condition, I got a call one day, and it was from a, a woman, and she had leaks in every room. I was like, yes. So that's a great thing. And I'm driving there the next day, and I'm noticing, and this is in Los Angeles, I'm noticing as getting closer and closer to the area where the home will be, that the, the homes are getting smaller and smaller, and then more disheveled, and until finally I turn on the home that the, the street would be on, where the, where the street where the home would be on, and I look, and I just see dead grass, and this home set back, and I, I drive up to it slowly, and I, it, it was like one of those one-half addresses, like 140 and a half, and I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe it's not it, and I walk up. Dad always says you do the right thing, so I, I knocked on the door, not knowing what I was gonna find, and three things happened right away that changed everything for me, and that leads me to be right here today. And the first is this woman answers the door, and I'll never forget her face when she answered the door. It was this tired face. I don't know how else to describe it, but tired, like I've been tired all month. Before I could say hello, I was overwhelmed with the smell of mildew. Like I've never smelt before, it just hit me, and I started to recoil, and all I know, and I had a fight or flight syndrome going, I had to get out of here. But as I started to pull away, I felt a tug at my finger. And I looked down, and in contrast to the mom's face and my face, there was this little girl with blonde hair with the biggest smile I can ever remember. And she just was like so happy because she had a visitor in her home and probably didn't happen very often. And she pulled me into the living room, into this tiny hallway, and then she turns into this room. And I, I knew it was her bedroom because she pointed to this, this poster on the wall, a My Little Pony poster on the wall. But when she did that, my eyes were drawn to the floor where I saw four mattresses with moldy bedding. And it still hits me hard when I see that. But I remember when that happened, I was stuck. I remember that feeling like, oh, it doesn't feel like you know where I'm going now. It felt like, oh my God, I have a mortgage payment to make in a couple of weeks. I have no money to pay this. This little girl, as cute as she is, she's a threat to me. I need to get out of this home. And I sat there for maybe 30 seconds, a long 30 seconds, until finally the mom walks back in the room and, and I saw that look on her face again. And I don't know why it was her face and not the little girl's, but when I saw that mom's face, I just turned to her and something came out of me before I could stop it that I don't remember ever saying before. And I, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to take care of your roof. And, uh, and as soon as I said it, I thought, am I? You know, I mean, can I? I, I don't know. And, and so I climbed up on that roof. Please, 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 please. May it just be like a, a hole, like maybe, you know, just one hole. No, the roof was shot. I needed a brand new roof. And so I got on the phone and I got six volunteers and, and we went back on that home where those six siblings lived, and we gave them a dry roof that weekend from a bunch of product from Home Depot. I just remember it was drippy on the outside, but it was dry on the inside, and that family stayed in that home. And that was, that was a really great experience. In fact, I sometimes call that my doctor on an airplane moment. You know, it's like we think if there's a doctor on an airplane and, 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 and they hear that, that, that note from the pilot, like, hey, we have, a, we have somebody that needs help. I think that we believe that that doctor, that he or she's going to raise their hand and say yes. And, and I, I doubt that, that we think that that doctor's gonna send a bill for their service. And so I think looking back, this was that one of those moments. And it was, it was a moment where I felt like I couldn't afford it, but I did it anyway. And I gotta say, that moment reoccurred. 
It reoccurred until finally we were kind of like stricken with this condition at Antis. We didn't talk about it back then, but we could never let a family have a leaky roof just because they didn't have the money to pay. And it was the thing. And it developed eventually into what our brand is today that we know why we exist. We exist to keep families safe and dry. That seems so simple, but it took 30 years to come up with that tagline. <laughs> okay, Dan, this is your first podcast. You were really engaged with what Charles was doing. So what are you thinking now as you listen to the first, his opening section? You know, I loved the uh, doctor on an airplane moment where he said, I'm going to take care of your roof. And then thought to himself immediately, am I or can I? Um, that, that just really made a big impact on me because I think we've all had moments where we, for whatever reason, are drawn to a specific cause or uh, an issue. And it is, um, it's really the defining moment and how you're going to help other people. And, and it, was in, it was just neat to hear his defining moment. Yeah, and for me, it was the focus of it. <clears throat> he said, I knew how to do one thing, and that's fix leaky roofs. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right, wow, right. <laughs> that's focused. Right. And, but what we concentrate on grows. So when you look at the world through a specific lens, what you see in that lens actually grows. And so I think in May's, if he just said, I help people who need help, he wouldn't have gotten called to that house, but right. he fixes leaky roofs. Right. And the fact that he's still doing it 30 years later means there's great power in focus. Right. So uh, let's just keep moving on. He's got some pretty interesting ideas about how this um, actually helped him mature this business. So I tell you these stories because when, when business is real, when your stories matter, when they happen in business, and you know, this led to Habitat for Humanity. I'm gonna, I have to give a quick plug for Habitat for Humanity. I've been on the board in Orange County for almost 10 years, but 11 years ago, I got a call from Sharon Ellis, the CEO of Habitat Orange County, and she said, Charles, will you donate a roof? And it was an easy yes, yes. And then we finished that roof. He was, Charles, will you donate another roof? Okay. And then, hey, we got a military development here, military families, you do eight more? Like, Oh, okay, so we did it. And, and that ended up being an awesome experience. And, and I have to say, to this day, we've donated every roof in Habitat for Habitat in Orange County. We just hit a milestone of a million dollars in roofing along with Eagle Tile last year. So we've donated a million dollars in roofing for every family that needed it. And that feels good because now our company knows why we exist. We know why we exist. And we believe we have this common thing with you, many of you, I talked about Habitat this morning with some of you, and we have this common thing that we believe that everyone deserves a decent place to live. What an awesome thing that is when you know something so clear about why you exist. Well, I want to go deeper because all of us have our stories, and I'm telling you nothing but stories. I'm going to go back to when I grew up. I grew up, when I grew up, I was raised a Mormon kid in Oregon. And I'm no longer Mormon, so I'm a foreman. Foreman. <laughs> but when you're Mormon, believe me, you're doing service, like service projects every weekend, helping people move. I do not like helping people move. I mean, if, I'm, if you're gonna move, you know, like box up your stuff, but it's not fun service, not fun service. So service to me was not something I loved. And I go to Thailand, as a Mormon, I'm, I'm asked to go to Thailand. I was like, oh, I don't want to go knock on doors. I don't want to do this. And then well, the first things I learned in Thailand is knocking on doors was against the law. I was like, yes. <laughs> and, and we're going to do service over here. Oh, service is teaching English. Yes. And so this was, this was a great experience. I really did have a Peace Corps-like experience in Thailand. But I'm telling you about one day, I'm, I'm 19 years old. 
and I'm as goofy. If any, of, if any of you have ever seen the play, The Book of Mormon, it's this racy, it's awesome because it nails the awkwardness and awesomeness of what it's like about you know, of eight 19, 20-year-old guys living together in a home. And so I'm in that home, and I, and I, and I get a, uh, one day um, Elder Antis. I'm Elder Antis there. This guy comes in. He goes, Elder Antis? Oh, yeah. Today we're going to do a service project. Oh, we're going to an orphanage. Okay. The orphanage um, is not going to be so pleasant, though. Okay. Why? Well, it's, it's hot. It smells, and they, they, they mix the populations of the physically and mentally handicapped, and that's not a good thing. So I went there with a really low expectation, and I get there, it's about 11 a.m. I walk into a room that's about twice as big as this stage, and there's 20 kids on the ground. I'm by myself, and I, there's 20 kids taking a nap, and as I walk in, one of the kids lifts up, and it's about a nine-year-old girl, and she has red cheeks painted on, like, like a clown had visited earlier. And I, she just stood up and she smiled and she had this most arresting smile, like, oh, it just lightened my mood. And then she put up these arms like this. And, and of course, that means pick me up. And I went and I was excited to pick her up. I was suddenly in this good mood. But when I went to pick her up, I was shocked because when I thought she would weigh about 30 pounds, as I lifted, she weighed about 12, 13 pounds. And I just had this shock, and I, and I didn't know what to do, and so I kind of bounced, like you do when your neighbor hands you the snot-nosed kid you don't want to hold. I kind of bounced, and I went to do this bounce-off, but I felt those long arms dig into mine. And so I, okay, I kind of regrouped, and maybe a long 30 seconds later, I went to bounce again. But as I went to bounce this time, two things happened. She dug her arms all the way around and dug them into my in my back, and then she just looked at me and she just smiled, like, not like a smile I had ever seen before in my life, like everything in her lit up and everything in me melted. I don't know what happened, I've never felt that in all my years, in service, 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 teaching English, great, whatever, but all of a sudden, right then, in that moment, holding this little girl, something happened in me, something awoken in me, and the only way I could ever be able to describe it since then is it reminds me growing up in Oregon in my grandma's house where grandma cooked on a wooden stove and she was stirring up this pot with this long stick. And it was like grandma was stirring something up inside of me and something was awoken and I was alive. And looking back, that's a powerful moment. And I, and, and I see a theme. I see a theme where, where while my company exists to keep families safe and dry, I, I have to acknowledge and lift children like a lot of you. So I'm really, really impressed at how vivid the imagery is in his storytelling techniques. I know he's worked at it, but it also comes natural. He is really good at creating, finding the passion in people and bringing that out through the way he engages us. I mean, I can see the picture of the orphanage yeah. in my head. I can see the picture of the girl. And what I've learned in all the years I've been doing this type of executive coaching that I do, if you're trying to make concepts that you believe in come alive, you have to be vivid, you have to be engaging, and you have to be passionate. Yeah, he really, he really has an ability to paint a picture, doesn't he? Um, and and that, was a, that was a really compelling story. Uh, the one thing that, that I liked in that, uh, what he was saying was how he sees and acknowledges a theme. Because it dawned on me as he was going on his speech that um, he's really picked an interesting industry f that kind of parallels his psychology. And that's he likes to protect people and what do roosts do? They protect 
people. And he, he loves to protect children in, uh, especially. So I just, I, there was this psychology or this theme kind of running through his, his talk that I thought was just very compelling and interesting. I think that's really insightful because you know what's coming. He starts to tell a really, really passionate story about his own children. So let's just go right there. Going on in my life, I'm gonna show you how life plays in a business, because it does in many ways. But, but another story that's way more personal to me was um, getting married. I'm 57 years old. I got married at 50 after saying I'd never get married again. And it was the best decision I've ever made. One of the hard parts was to have children. Do I have more children? I've already had children. Do I have more children? And I was so scared and it was so awkward and I was so like, what am I gonna do? And I made the best decision of my life. And my wife and I were pregnant. My wife, Dawn, and, and she was pregnant with, with twins. And we'd already named the twins, Charlie and Gracie. And she's carrying them a super healthy pregnancy, but a really big belly. And we, are, we just went back from a, our, got back from our baby moon. I never knew what a baby moon was. Look it up, it's awesome. <laughs> Except when we got back the next day, and she's about seven weeks out from the due date, she felt a little ill. We went to the doctor. The doctor said, come to the hospital, bring your bags. You have preeclampsia. I'm Googling preeclampsia. It's like, oh, no. The babies need to come out. And so we go to the hospital. The doctor didn't say that. But we go right to a room. There's four doctors in the room. There's one for my wife, one for Charlie, one for Gracie, and a doctor for me. Because it was difficult watching a cesarean birth. Especially when I'd seen other births where I heard a baby cry. And in this birth, when Charlie came out first, he was pulled out first, um, I just remember this thought like, oh, he looks like my wife's father. He looked like what Benjamin Button must have looked like if they would have put the camera on him. You know, that's, I mean, that was my experience. And it's, it's funny now, but at the time it was like, oh my God. And then my daughter came out and immediately there was this little bit of right, a race to get tubes in. And suddenly it, all I remember was everything being whisked away and me going up to the room and then finally going in to see Charlie and Gracie and they're inside a NICU. They're inside the Children's Hospital NICU and there's 60 other NICUs and there's bells and whistles going off. And this happy pregnancy suddenly turned into like, are our children gonna be okay? But the Children's Hospital nurses, the Orange County Chalk nurses, they said, hey, if you want your kids to heal, this is what we've learned. Come in every day, twice, pull off your shirt, Lay the kids on your chest, naked, skin on skin. And this is what we found will give them the best chance to heal. And so I said, okay. And I took a month off work. And every day, my wife and I made that drive. And it was a long drive, half an hour each way to, to Mission Hospital. And every day when we walk into that NICU, we would walk, walk right by the Ronald McDonald House station, where a volunteer would offer us a bed if we needed to spend the night, a coffee, working on the computer, whatever, they were just, they were there, they were just like, hey, come on, you know, how can, how can we help? And I remember specifically how I felt. Um, I, I, was, I was polite as much as I had to be, but I, I ignored Susan, her name was Susan, the one I saw the most, mostly because looking back now, I didn't wanna be a part of the Sick Kid Club. I didn't want any part of that. I was in denial, I was, I was trying not to feel sorry for myself, and that was the thing, every day, twice a day, going in and out. And then one day, I had to go to do something for work that morning, and I was racing, and I was behind, and I was going to have Charlie on my chest that day. And I'm driving to the hospital, it's about 9 a.m., and I realize, oh, I have really bad 
chronic heartburn going on. In fact, those of you who have had chronic heartburn, you know it can be so bad you, you're not going to be able to do what you planned on doing, let alone rest a, a, a sleeping baby on your chest. And so I was, I was feeling sorry for myself, wondering what I'm going to do, realizing why I'm getting this heartburn because of these kids. I walk in, and nobody's at the Ronald McDonald House station. And that, since nobody was there, I looked down, and I saw this thing staring at me with like a neon sign, and it was a, a little green Nature Valley granola bar. You know that one. You've seen it. You've had it. And that thing felt like that would solve my GERD. And if there was, and GERD's an ugly word for chronic heartburn, but that's, it's an ugly day. And here, so I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? And nobody was there. And had there been somebody there, I probably wouldn't have stolen it, but I stole that bar. <laughs> I say stole because I had no intention of paying Ronald McDonald House back a dime. But I stole that bar, and I did the math in my head. It might have cost him 20 cents. I, I'd reasoned with it. And I don't remember what happened after that until about a half an hour later. I have this clear memory of laying there on that chair with my shirt off and Charlie there. And I just remember feeling grateful that I had that bar because I was completely settled, and he was sleeping, and it was the right place to be. And I, I tell you that story because that's my real-life experience and I wasn't proud of it. But then a few months later, I'm speaking somewhere, and this lady comes up and goes, hey, I'm from Ronald McDonald House. We started talking, and we discovered that I really discovered why it was there. The metaphor made sense. Oh, you know, I have something to confess. I, I, I stole a granola bar from you a couple years ago. And, oh, that's great. Oh, good. You want another one? No, no. <laughs> but in that reciprocation right there, I discovered that, you know, the Ronald McDonald houses, there's 165 of them in the US, I discovered that they exist to keep the families literally next to, across the hall or across the street from the hospital because that's gonna help children's heal if the family can heal together. And so I was so fascinated by that. I said, wow, you keep families close when they need it the most. And then I, I'm a marketing guy, and also I love to do good stuff, and I've already had this experience with Habitat. And I said, what if we, huh, what if we um, kept you safe and dry? So now we kept the families safe, dry, and close to their sick kids. And they said, sure. And so it wasn't long after that I became a board member for Orange County Ronald McDonald House, which I am today, and I love it very much. And it's like, wow, my real-life story plays in my business. And, and so that was really fascinating to see how real life and business, when they, when they co-merge and when people know who you are and when you ring with authenticity, they get to know who you are. They get to really know who you are. If you're, if you're aligned in a time when authenticity is so misdiagnosed in our world, we need this. And people that know, that see the Habitat brand along with, with me, then they, like I said, they know that we, like them, are aligned in believing that everyone has a decent place to live. And they see the Ronald McDonald House brand, they believe that, oh, you like me, believe that it is unimaginable to ignore sick children. And there's power there. Okay, so at this point, I know the goodness barista, Bo, is just beaming. Because prior to this, we had engaged the audience in a personal branding exercise. We talked about the power of positivity. And we learned through a one-question survey in advance that um, four out of five people, roughly 80% of the people we surveyed before the breakfast and during the breakfast, work for a leader who's positive in ways that create a positive culture, an encouraging culture. But that also means one out of five, you know, 20% don't. And 
you know, if that was a disease, that would be an epidemic of negativity. And so we ask people to think deeply about what words do they want to own in their own personal brand and choose one that they would promise everybody in the breakfast that they would go back and absolutely be. Here are the top five words that were chosen by the 200 and some people at the Good Leadership Breakfast this morning. The number one was authentic. So most people chose the word authentic, and I know Bo, I saw Bo over there just beaming because our research played out when uh, Charles acknowledged that. The other four are empowering, integrity, positive, and collaborative. Do you remember which word you decided to own? I am going to own integrity. And my word was empowering. So both of our perspectives were reflected in this data. When you heard Charles talking about the authenticity thing up there, what was going on in your mind? Well, you know, what was going on in my mind was I truly think he is is authentic. Whereas I chose integrity because I want to be, I think I'm, I have integrity, but I really want to get better at that. And I think that's what most people do is they choose something that they want to improve or strengthen. I think Charles is authentic. And, and I'll tell you why I think this is because I, I noticed that as he's become more successful, his altruism has gotten larger in scope. Whereas some people, you know, they, they may become more successful, but they're going to still give at the same level or measure that they were before. But he has, the more successful he gets, the bigger his projects get. And that is really authentic to what his culture that he's developed at his company is and, and kind of how he brands himself. For me, when I heard him say that, I had this like, ooh, geez moment. Because when I first started my company and my wife and I pulled together our advisory board and we said, okay, we're going to be called, we're going to call ourselves good leadership. We're going to be committed to the idea that goodness pays. And one of our advisors said, ooh, you better be careful with that. <laughs> Because you go out there and talk about you're the goodness guy, you better keep your nose clean. And I thought to myself, ooh, geez, because his reaction was not positive. It was, I I think you're playing with fire, kid. You better be careful. And so it's like, yeah, we really do have to live in a way that is consistent with goodness. Otherwise, we would not be in business. Yes. Well, Charles had one more really powerful section that he ended with. And so let's jump there. What's also awesome is I'm a member of the National Roofing Contractors Association Board. I'm very involved in that and the Roofing Alliance, which is the philanthropic arm. And so they came to me a couple years ago and goes, hey, what can we do? What can we do to change roofing? Because three out of five companies fail. People don't trust roofers. And they gave me all these stats. And I said, let's donate all the roofs to Habitat. We can do it. And they quickly said, no, there's too many. That'd be a billion dollars in roofing. And so I had all these ideas. Until finally I said one day, wait, there's 165 Ronald McDonald houses. What if we provided the roofing, all of us roofing companies? And I kind of forgot that I had said it because they had kind of laughed at some of my ideas. And then I went to the Roofing Alliance board meeting a couple years ago. I sat down and I hadn't read the board. I haven't read the board packet. And all of a sudden, there was this Ronald McDonald House presentation. I'm looking around. I go, what's, what's going on? And I watched these 80 roofers, mostly men, the kind of a stereotypical rough-looking, tumbling cowboy. And I watched them all take their thumbs up to their eyes, and they showed the Ronald McDonald film so they wouldn't see, no one would see they're crying. I was one of them. We didn't want anyone to see that we were crying. But then I watched this all vote 
In the, in the 130 years of the National Roofing Contractors Association, for the first time we adopted a nonprofit partner, and I watched these men vote unanimously that we would from now on keep all of these families safe, dry, and close to their six kids, and that was an awesome moment. And since that time, over 200 companies have adopted all of 165 freestanding Ronald McDonald houses across this country, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop and applause that right now. And that is like, I'm loving life. This is so good. And so when I look at you and what is your story? Your story is powerful. Your life is perfect. With whatever your folly, whatever that, those things that have happened to me, those goofy things I've done, my life is perfect. And I, I want us to look at it that, that way. Whether you're aligned with Habitat, Ronald McDonald House, or you're like my friend Paul Leone, Paul Leone is the CEO of the Illumination Foundation in Orange County and, 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 and in LA. And, and Paul helps the chronically homeless. And Paul says this. He tells the story of Stephen, a one-armed veteran that they found near death living under the freeway. And when he came to three weeks later, the first thing he said to Paul was, you know, in the, I can count on my one hand how many times I've been acknowledged by another human being in the 10 years that I lived under this freeway. And when Paul tells that story, it's, I'll never forget it. And we never forget it because Paul also tells three months later with Stephen with his military uniform pinned up on one side and his girlfriend on the other when he graduated that ceremony three months later and he was able to live in housing again and, and look in the mirror knowing he'd been acknowledged. So what is your story? There's power. My, my last thing I'll say is this, is when we know our stories and when we realize our lives are perfect exactly how they are and we're curious daily, then we'll have power. And with that power, we can change everything. Thank you. Okay, Dan, how did you feel about what he finished his talk with? I thought that was, that was really an interesting way to look at life when he said, my life is perfect. That might confuse some people if they hadn't uh, really understood what he meant by that. Mm -hmm. The way I took it, and I'm hoping I understood it correctly, that he's not saying literally his life is perfect. It's perfect for him. And so... If I were going to adopt that, I may not say my life is perfect. I might say I'm grateful for my life because mm -hmm. that's really what he's saying is, look, for me, this is, this is perfection because of the imperfection. And so gratefulness would be maybe a word I might use as opposed to perfect. Yeah, I, I was watching people. I've, I've known Charles. I've heard him say that. And there's this, this school of thought called science of mind that says what we say to ourselves, we project onto other people. And it's really in conflict with, I know you're Catholic, I'm Lutheran. There's this Christian doctrine that says original sin. Mm-hmm. And that we are imperfect and we need to accept that imperfect and, and, and constantly pray for the ability to overcome our sins and our imperfection. And right. this is more of an Eastern thought that mm -hmm. he put out there as opposed to a Western you know, doctrine. And it's pretty fascinating. And I, I, I probed it later on in the interview, which is kind of where I want to go next. But my point is here, he is really, he owns this and that he tries to find a place where he knows and feels that he doesn't, he's not inferior. He has what he needs. 
So therefore, he's going to use all of that to do something good today. So um, for you listeners, one of the things I do is I interview the speaker afterwards, and we ask for audience input, and he, um, he answered that question uh, very directly. So let's just jump to that right now. You said something that at the very end that um, a certain style of positive thinking um, uses all the time and that your life is perfect and whole and complete. So perfect. Your life is perfect. So what do you do to maintain that? Well, I, I think um, I, what I'm referring to is I can often wake up with, I'm going to call it an old lie. It's a, it's a rough word. I get, but maybe it's an untruth. And the untruth is um, that something's wrong with me. Um, the untruth is, it's like I wake up, I'm going to give you um, more than just the words. I wake up and sometimes, and there's a, oh shit, pardon my language, oh, you got to hang on to this, it's all going to go away. I, I, I don't know where that comes from, it kind of been the tapes of my childhood somehow, but, but I wake up with that, but I'm able to, through a morning practice of journaling and a little meditation, cast that off and go, F that. This is a magic day of creation. Now that's fancy words, they're goofy. I like to use words that you can't, I don't leave anybody out. You can call me weird. I live in California, I've learned that I can hold that. But that's it, I, 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 I turn the day into a magic day. I, my five-year-old girl was sick, Gracie was sick two weeks ago, and I, and I, I saw Gracie, I go, Gracie, um, how, how are you? And she's sniffling, what's today, Gracie? And she says, Dad, it's the best day ever. And I just like, <laughs> yes. And you know what? I talked to the, how was the day? It was great, Dad. And it's like, you know, it's, it's an attitude. It's a mind shift. And it's a promotional mindset. And I'll do anything to hang on to that. So what are you thinking? Did that help around that perfect idea? It did. And it, what a cute image of him with his daughter. And, and, you know, how could life not be more perfect when you're holding a five-year-old that's got the sniffles and... Mm -hmm adopts your philosophy, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's that gratefulness and that perfection and just being imperfect and being perfect with being imperfect. Yeah. For me, the, oh shit moment is I got to hang on to all this stuff is a, a scarcity mindset. Yeah. If right. I don't hang on to, I'm going to lose it. Right. And if I lose my stuff, I'm going to lose me and all the people I love and all that stuff. It's just a, it's a slippery slope that a lot of sin-based thinking goes right. there, right? Yeah, right, right. So, um, it's selfish thinking. It, it is, but the perfection mindset comes from a place of abundance mm -hmm. that I ha I'm perfect, whole, and complete today. There's nothing else I need from anybody else I can make today awesome. And I think that's a big piece of the philosophy that we use when we teach goodness to leaders. You know, they can go on and on and on about their challenges, but when we say, hey, what's going well today and how can we multiply that? Sometimes they look at us like we got horns growing out of our <laughs> head, but eventually they start to realize, yep, that really is the path forward. Right. Well, a big piece of the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast is for us to summarize our learning. So we call it the carpe diem moment, the actionable insights. I mean, I asked everybody that comes up on stage. I asked Julie today, my co-host. I asked Bo, the barista, what did you learn? So I'm now I'm going to ask you, what did you learn from Charles Antis that you can use right away to make you a better leader today? Well, I will give you a little bit of inside baseball for those people listening is that I was lucky enough to have dinner with Paul and uh, Charles last night. Yeah, so that was we had, fun. We had some discussions around this. And one of the things we talked about, and I think this goes in keeping with what Charles does and his philosophy is um, 
is we talked about trying to help at least one person per day. Mm-hmm. And um, that that's going to be my goal is to really wake up and think, okay, if I can help one person, no matter what else happens during the day, I've had a good day. And um, if you go in the mindset of helping a coworker or an associate or someone you're managing with, um, you know, getting better or maybe helping them with a personal issue or just being extra friendly, whatever it is, um, I think that's a good way to go through life. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I'm going to go back to the word that I chose, um, empowering. Um, you know, we have this very small business where we touch a lot of people. And the only way to make it work is everybody has to really pull their weight and make things special for other people every single day. And I, I sometimes think maybe I feel like I have to carry too much of it myself. And I was thinking about that, about these beautiful people that work here in our firm, not only employees, but also the the freelance coaches. And we've got so many ways we can empower them to do more for our clients because what we do is spread goodness because we've proven that goodness pays. And there's no rest for the weary when you choose that as your mission. Hey, Paul, thanks for inviting me today to be a part of your podcast. I've had a, a great time and, and just am grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, and we're really grateful for your support. Uh, anybody listening today, you can send us an email at info at goodleadership.com, and we'll send you the research summary of the meeting today that Dan and his organization, Lockton, are sponsoring. We're really grateful for that. Okay, so what's the final phrase that we want everyone to remember when they listen to this podcast, Dan? Well, of course, it's goodness pays. Yes, and we'll, and what do you, and how did Charles say it? Goodness pays. And for me, yes, it's goodness pays. We are really grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast, whether you're on an airplane or you're in a commute or you're out for your fitness exercise. Uh, we're just really grateful you chose to spend that time with us. And we're also, we have high hopes for you. The world needs us to be good leaders who radiate goodness. And that means working through our teams to make everything better every single day. So we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you very much.